Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There are many historical figures that I want to talk about in this series. You guys seem to really enjoy when I do these really comprehensive overviews of different philosophers or mystics and the like. And many of you have very strong wishes and opinions as well. And the person that we'll talk about today is perhaps the most requested of this kind. It's a figure that I haven't really studied in any deep way previously, at least not to the same degree that I've studied someone like Ibn Arabi, for example. So it's been really great to brush up on my knowledge when I was researching this video. He is indeed one of the most famous Muslim scholars in history and has been called a mujadid, a reviver of the religion, as well as the greatest Muslim after the Prophet Muhammad. But he has also lately been accused of being the person who single-handedly ended the Islamic Golden Age and put a stop to philosophy and science in the Islamic world. And as this will hopefully show, the situation is a lot more complex than that. And regardless of your opinion, we cannot deny the importance and influence of this great man. So let's take a few minutes to talk about Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali was born Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Tusi al-Ghazali and would later become known either as just al-Ghazali or as Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. His year of birth was 1058 and he was from the region of Tus in Persia, which is modern Iran. He must have had a pretty idyllic upbringing because both he and his brother, the younger Ahmad Ghazali, would go on to become great scholars that are remembered to this day, both of them. So maybe there was something in the water. As I said, Ghazali is one of the most famous Muslim scholars, especially of the Middle Ages, but really of all time. No other Islamic figure has been studied to the same degree by Western scholars. And so this is one of the reasons I was a little skeptical towards making this, because there is already plenty of videos and information out there by people who are a lot smarter than I am that you can find. But I'll 
do my best to give you a, a interesting and comprehensive overview of his life and some of his ideas and works. Nonetheless, from a young age, Al-Ghazali would study the different religious sciences of the time, primarily jurisprudence or fiqh. He was a very gifted young man, and at the young age of about 19, he was upgraded to go study in the city of Nishapur, which was one of the sort of centers of learning at the time, with a renowned scholar by the name Imam al-Haramayn al-Juwayni. Al-Juwayni was one of the leading scholars in the Islamic world at the time, being a legal expert in the Shafi'i law school and also a strong proponent of the Ashari school of Kalam or theology. This teacher must have had a large impact on Al-Ghazali intellectually, as Al-Ghazali himself would stay devoted to the Shafi law school and the Ashari theological school for the rest of his life. When Al-Juwayni died in 1085, Al-Ghazali seems to have stayed in the city of Nishapur for a number of years, gaining a reputation as a brilliant young man who wrote uh, eventually books of his own on Shafi law. But in 1091, the Seljuk vizier Nizam al-Mulk decided to appoint al-Ghazali as professor of law in one of his newly founded colleges in Baghdad. There were a few of these colleges who went by the name Nizamiya, named after the person who founded them, Nizam al-Mulk, but the one in Baghdad was the most prestigious of them all. This was the most prestigious school or center of learning in the whole Islamic world at the time, so Al-Ghazali gained a very high status by being appointed a professor there. Nizam al-Mulk had founded these colleges as a way to promote a certain kind of uh, Sunni Islam that the Abbasids considered to be Orthodox Islam. The Fatimid Empire, which ruled from Egypt and who were Ismaili Shi'i Muslims, was a serious political threat to the Abbasids at this time, as well as a religious threat or religious opponents. They held a obviously very different theology than the sort of perceived Sunni orthodoxy of the Abbasids, so they were a threat on, on both fronts. So the Nizamiya schools were partly founded as a way to counteract the influence of Fatimid Ismaili doctrine that was becoming more and more popular, as well as other conceived deviating groups. As a result, the school's curriculum was often highly polemical and um, functioned as refutations of uh, schools of thought that was considered to be esoteric, like the Ismailis and other groups, as well as different forms of philosophy or falsafa, as we will see. We can see this pretty clearly by the fact that one of the first works that Al-Ghazali writes after he arrived in Baghdad was Al-Fada'ih al-Batiniya, The Scandal of the Esoterics, which was a kind of attack against um, groups that were considered esoteric groups, like the Ismailis or the Fatimids in particular. Al-Ghazali would spend the following couple of years in Baghdad as the uh, one of the highest positions and the most prestigious school in all of the Islamic world, so he had a high reputation. He was famous for having incredible rhetorical skills and high intelligence. He had a family. By every measure, he was an incredibly successful man at this point. He engaged in debates on theology and philosophy and wrote many works in, on these subjects. 
Um, his knowledge was based on intellectual activity. He was a man of book learning at this point in his life. And it is at this time of his career that he writes some of his most famous works. Al-Iqtisad fil-Ittiqad, Moderation in Belief, is perhaps his most important work of pure theology or kalam. And in it, we can clearly see Al-Ghazali's strong adherence to the theological school of the Ash'aris in particular. The schools of Kalam, which is kind of doctrinal or systematic theology, had engaged in, in debates and polemical uh, writings with the proponents of falsafa or philosophy, more specifically philosophy derived from Greek sources primarily. Um, and this was a debate that had been going on for centuries at this point already. And this later group, the falsafa group, included famous philosophers like Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi. And Al-Ghazali provides one of the most significant and impactful additions to this larger debate with the writing of his monumental Tahafut al-Falasifa, The Incoherence of the Philosophers, also written at this time in Baghdad when he served as the professor at the Nizamiya school. This book is a scathing critique of the philosophers, especially Ibn Sina and to some degree his predecessor Al-Farabi. But he isn't, as some have assumed, trying to discredit everything that the philosophers say, but rather to, you could say, fish out those parts where they go against Islamic orthodoxy and criticize those aspects of these philosophers' uh, writings. In the book, he brings up 20 different philosophical theories and deems three of them to be completely unacceptable, according to Islamic orthodoxy. Number one is the idea of the eternity of of the world, which a lot of the philosophers held. Secondly, the idea that God only has knowledge of universals and not particulars. And lastly, the denial of bodily resurrection based on the affirmation of the immortal immaterial soul. Al-Ghazali claims that Ibn Sina and anyone who holds to these ideas are guilty of kufr or unbelief, thus making them themselves unbelievers, kafir or kufar in plural. So Al-Ghazali clearly held very strong theological beliefs and used his very prominent uh, argumentative skills to argue for these opinions. His life could be seen as a constant search for knowledge, true knowledge of the truth, which was inseparable from knowledge of God. All of his intellectual endeavors was aimed at reaching knowledge, and he says this himself. Quote, the thirst for grasping the real meaning of things was indeed my habit and wont from my early years and in the prime of my life. It was an instinctive, natural disposition placed in my makeup by God Most High, not something due to my own choosing and contriving. But he also tells us in his autobiography that sometime while he was working in Baghdad, he had a intellectual or spiritual crisis, one of several in his life. And this period of skepticism began when he realized that we can't really trust our senses. To Al-Ghazali, there were two kinds of knowledge. There was knowledge that we gained from sense perception. So anything that I see or hear or taste or touch, that is a direct kind of knowledge that I have. And secondly, there was rational knowledge, intellectual knowledge, you know, say conceptual knowledge. So this is knowledge that we can deduce from intellectual activity. But Al-Ghazali realized that when it comes to the senses, they aren't really all that trustworthy. For example, quote, the strongest of the senses is the sense of sight. 
Now, this looks at a shadow and sees it standing still and motionless and judges that motion must be denied. Then, due to experience and observation, an hour later it knows that the shadow is moving, and that it did not move in a sudden spurt, but so gradually and imperceptibly that it was never completely at rest. Sight also looks at a star and sees it as something small, the size of a dinar, then geometrical proofs demonstrate that it surpasses the Earth in size. In the case of this and similar instances of sense data, the sense judge makes its judgments, but the reason judge refutes it and repeatedly gives it the lie in an incontrovertible fashion. So he asks, if we can trust our sight, which is to him the strongest sense, what can we trust? So this then naturally also extended to that other kind of knowledge that Azali lists, which is reason. If we can't trust our senses, then can we really trust reason? And he comes to the conclusion that no, reason too is in fact fallible. Quote, While everything you believe through sensation or intellection in your waking state may be true in relation to that state, what assurance have you that you may not suddenly experience a state which would have the same relation to your waking state as the latter has to your dreaming, and your waking state would be dreaming in relation to that new and further state? If you found yourself in such a state, you would be sure that all your rational beliefs were unsubstantial fancies. And this launched Al-Ghazali into a huge personal and spiritual crisis. He becomes skeptical of everything, even though he is outwardly pious and, and still practices his religion. Inwardly, he is unsure of everything. He can't know if anything is true. Similar to Descartes, Al-Ghazali questioned all assumptions. He was unsure if he could know anything at all. Quote, this malady was mysterious and it lasted for nearly two months. During that time, I was a skeptic in fact, but not in utterance and doctrine. At length, God Most High cured me of that sickness. My soul regained its health and equilibrium, and once again I accepted the self-evident data of reason and relied on them with safety and certainty. But that was not achieved by constructing a proof or putting together an argument. On the contrary, it was the effect of a light which God Most High cast into my breast, and that light is the key to most knowledge. But this was only the first of his several personal crises. Um, after working a number of years in Baghdad and being an enormously successful man, something happened again. In 1095, he had another major spiritual and existential crisis. This was spurred by him realizing that all of his intellectual endeavors, his whole career, had been based on selfish desires. He did not seek knowledge or, or have this high teaching position for the sake of knowledge itself or for the sake of God, perhaps, but instead, as he admits himself, it was to gain fame and reputation. So it was an egotistical uh, reason behind it. His whole motivation for writing all those works, all those debates, was worldly success. And this sent him into an even greater spiritual abyss, and he fell greatly ill, both mentally and physically, being basically unable to teach anymore. He also appears to have been questioning the purely rational and doctrinal approaches to religion that he had dedicated his life to at, up to this point. He says himself that, quote, Next, I attentively considered my circumstances, and I saw that I was immersed in attachments which had encompassed me from all sides. 
I also considered my activities, the best of them being public and private instruction, and that in them I was applying myself to sciences unimportant and useless in this pilgrimage to the hereafter. Then I reflected on my intention in my public teaching, and I saw that it was not directed purely to God, but rather was instigated and motivated by the quest for fame and widespread prestige. So I became certain that I was on the brink of a crumbling bank and already on the verge of falling into the fire, unless I set about mending my ways. His brother Ahmed al-Ghazali, who we talked about in the beginning, had taken a slightly different path in life than his older brother. He had become a Sufi, a ascetic dervish, who would later on become one of the most famous uh, Sufi poets in the Persian language of all time. Al-Ghazali the Elder was of course aware of his younger brother and the Sufis generally, and at this time in his life it seems that he decided that he wanted to take a new approach to reaching true knowledge, one not through books or arguments, debates or intellectual conceptual knowledge, but rather through the direct experience and tasting of the Sufi mystics. He left some money and made arrangements for his family to be taken care of, but gave away the rest of the money to charity. He told his superiors that he was simply going on a pilgrimage to Mecca and had his brother take his place as teacher in his absence. But he wasn't just going on a pilgrimage, he was going on a long journey, both inwardly and outwardly, to discover true knowledge through mysticism. He left basically everything behind, including his family, and wandered. Uh, it appears that he stayed in Damascus for a while, closing himself off in the uh, um, famous Umayyad mosque. Uh, it also appears that he did go on a pilgrimage to Mecca for a while, but after this we know basically nothing about what he did or where he was. For 11 years he was gone. He wandered around the Islamic world, uh, probably meditating, praying, and doing other spiritual practices. And after those 11 years, he was a changed man. It is this turning point, this experience, that makes Al-Ghazali Al-Ghazali. It is the pivotal turning point in his life that makes him such an interesting and inspirational character. He returned to the world as a fully dedicated Sufi, who had affirmed that the experiences that all the previous mystics had talked about were indeed true. He had reached true knowledge through direct experience of the truth. For some reason, he then returned to his family in the year 1106. He resumed his teaching position and eventually moved back to his native region of Tours in Persia, where he later also died in the year 1111. Very easy date to remember. Al-Ghazali had spent his life in search of knowledge and found it in Sufism. But that doesn't mean that he gave up all his intellectual activity. He indeed continued to write and, and many different works of, of, of theology, for example, and he still appears to have very strongly adhered to the Ashari school of Kalam for the rest of his life, even if he was also very critical of the kind of speculative rationalist approach to God by the end of his life. In fact, it was during his 11 years of living in seclusion that he authored his most famous and important work, and one of the most significant and influential books in intellectual history, the Ihya Ulum ad-Din, or The Revival of the Religious Sciences. 
The importance of this work cannot be overstated. Some claim that it is the most widely read Islamic book after the Quran and the Hadith literature, and it came to have a significant impact on the future trajectory of Muslim intellectual thought in general. It's a massive, monumental work. The book is a kind of summary of the principles and practices of Islam generally, and a kind of guide for people on how to live a reflective, pious, and spiritual life. It is divided into four sections that deals with the essentials of faith, social customs, as well as how to live a properly spiritual life. The last two sections of the book are on the spiritual and mystical aspects and in a way functions as the kind of goal of all religious devotion. The book kind of leads the reader on a path to the higher stages of mystical life. So while the book is obviously quite broad in its scope, Al-Ghazali shows his clear devotion to Sufism in particular by dedicating so much of this work to it. Indeed, one of the significant things that this book did was that it attempted to synthesize Islamic theological doctrine and kalam with the practices and ideas of Sufism in general, presenting a more easily accessible form of Sufism which was, according to its audiences, more firmly grounded in accepted doctrine. As a result, Al-Ghazali and Ihya al-Umuddin is often seen as being responsible for the wider acceptance of Sufism generally in the Islamic world and of the incredible flourishing of Sufism in the later Middle Ages. While I would be careful about attributing all of this to him, there are of course many other factors that played into this development, Al-Ghazali is still obviously an incredibly influential and maybe one of the most influential thinkers in the history and development of Sufism in general. And indeed he is greatly remembered, not just in the Islamic world, but in the West and other parts of the world as well. His discussions and debates with the philosophers of the Falsafa school is often particularly um, often discussed. He employs rationalism and philosophical speculation and methods, but often arrives at different conclusions. Rationality was, in fact, very important to Al-Ghazali. And this also brings us to another key discussion or key point in this discussion. While Al-Ghazali is remembered as one of the most influential thinkers in history, especially Islamic history, he is also often very harshly criticized today. The astrophysicist and celebrity scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example, has held lectures where he accuses Al-Ghazali of being the person who single-handedly ended the so-called Islamic Golden Age by being opposed to philosophers and science. Um, he, there's even the, been the claim that Al-Ghazali considered mathematics to be the work of Satan, which is ridiculous. But this whole position is really problematic and has nonetheless become kind of, to some degree at least, common knowledge. People assume these things about Al-Ghazali when a lot of it is really isn't that true. Now, don't get me wrong, Neil deGrasse Tyson is an exceptional science educator and probably a great astrophysicist as well. His show Cosmos is one of the best ways to learn about modern science, but his statements on Al-Ghazali showcases an incredibly unnuanced position and frankly total unfamiliarity with Islamic intellectual history. Al-Ghazali certainly did not think that mathematics was the work of Satan. He didn't even really dislike mathematics. While in general he was often critical of the philosophers, as we discussed previously, he did not reject all of their ideas or all of their methods. And in all of this, mathematics was in fact one of the things that he liked the most, because mathematics in fact allowed for a scientific certainty that 
satisfied Al-Ghazali to a large degree. He even states himself in his biographical treatise, Deliverance from Error, that, quote, great indeed is the crime against religion committed by anyone who supposes that Islam is to be championed by the denial of these mathematical sciences. But also, just in a general sense, the view of Al-Ghazali as this enemy of rationality and rational thought is a very inaccurate view of history. It is also true that his critique of the philosophers, coupled with his great popularity as a scholar, dealt a serious blow to falsafa in general. It steered the general trend of the Islamic intellectual world away from Greek philosophy and towards the Ashari kind of theology and towards mysticism or Sufism also. It is also true that as a result of this, philosophy became a lot less common and popular, especially in the Arabic-speaking world. But with all of this in mind, a few things need to be said. Firstly, when we say that philosophy experienced a decline, we are talking specifically about the philosophy of the falsafa scholars. That is, philosophy that derived mainly from the Greek sources and which sometimes downplayed the importance of religious revelation in favor of pure rationalism. It does not mean that philosophy in a broader sense died or disappeared at all. Kalam theology could be said to be a kind of philosophical theology, and Sufism, which flourished over the coming centuries, certainly contained elements of philosophy and intellectual speculation of different sorts. So philosophy, including influences from thinkers like Aristotle or the Neoplatonist school, continued to have a huge influence and impact on the Islamic intellectual world, often indirectly through speculative Sufism or through uh, the Kalam theology scholars. But even the Falsafa tradition itself didn't necessarily die. It soon adapted to the new environment and flourished in different new circumstances. Ibn Rushd, or Averroes, is one of the most famous philosophers of all time, perhaps, and he lived after Al-Ghazali. But this is a bad example, actually, as Ibn Rushd mainly had an influence on European thinking and had little impact in the Islamic world. A better example would be to showcase the philosophical and scientific traditions that flourished in later Safavid Persia, for example, the so-called School of Isfahan. This included philosophers like Mir Damad and Mullah Sadra, Sadra Din al-Shirazi. It is also generally true that there were great scientists and philosophers in the Ottoman world, in the Safavid Persia and Mughal India. So while it is true that a certain form of falsafa philosophy experienced a kind of decline after Al-Ghazali, uh, it would be a huge oversimplification to say that it simply died. It, it didn't. It survived in various different forms in new circumstances. Secondly, this relative decline should not be solely attributed to Al-Ghazali himself, if at all. He did indeed become an important symbol for the critique of philosophy, but he wasn't necessarily responsible himself. And many other factors played into the decline of falsafa as well. Many people also say that Nizam al-Mulk, the person who founded the Nizamiya schools that uh, al-Ghazali was appointed professor of, that he was also highly responsible for this. And this is at least more likely, since the schools that Nizam al-Mulk founded were done so in particular to you could say, refute certain strands or schools of thought within Islam, like the esoterics, like the Ismailis, but also certain strands of philosophy and falsafa, and to promote a certain kind of fixed orthodoxy. 
So this was, of course, incredibly important since these schools were so prestigious and had a huge influence. Nizam al-Mulk can be seen as one of the main factors in this uh, shift, intellectual shift. Also incredibly important and obvious point, and yet one that most people don't talk about and, and consider when having this discussion, is of course the invasion of you know what I'm gonna say, the Mongols. Yes, the atomic bomb of the Middle Ages obviously invaded much of the Islamic world in the 13th century, and in 1258 they sacked Baghdad. The complete destruction that their campaign brought, they basically destroyed everything, resulted in all of the great centers, libraries and centers of learning were destroyed as a result of the Mongol invasion, and that includes the famous House of Wisdom, the Beit al-Hikmah in Baghdad. So obviously the invasion of the Mongol armies and the incredibly divided and chaotic period that followed was an immensely important factor in the decline of philosophy and, and scientific development in general in this region of the world. Hopefully then we can see that attributing the decline of, of rational thought in the Islamic world to this one man is highly, it's a very dangerous and inaccurate way to tell history. There's a lot more nuance and context to take into account here, not to mention the great intellectual integrity of the man himself. To summarize, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali is a very complex man. He was an intellectual giant in his time who both debated and composed works of theological polemics and discussion, as well as being a devoted mystic and Sufi by the end of his life. He wrote some of the most impactful works of literature in the history of the world and has left behind a legacy that few others can match. Personally, I think one of the most interesting and inspiring parts of Al-Ghazali's whole life is just that, his life, his biography. It takes a lot of courage and introspective clarity, not just to realize and, and admit to yourself that your whole career is based on egotistical uh, pursuits and, and worldly desires, but also to take that opportunity to change that and go on a long spiritual journey to change your life for the better. And on top of this, to also admit in his own writings to these personal faults and skepticisms is not something that we see too often in history. And it really shows you the integrity and the humbleness of the man. And this is something I think we can all learn from and try to apply as best we can to our lives and the journeys that we take. I'll see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.